Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 to 20. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find the passage at the bottom of page 859. Again, today's reading passage is from Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 to 20. Please stand in honor of God's holy and inerrant word. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to gather here this Sunday morning to sing songs of worship to you, but also to sit under the preaching of your word. Your word says that the person who meditates upon your law is blessed and that he's like a tree planted by streams of water. And may that be true of us this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, it describes the world of Narnia being in perpetual winter. In fact, you would hear Narnians often say, always winter and never Christmas. Uh, the cold and bleary weather reminded all of Narnia who was in charge, the White Witch. And you always had to be careful with what you said because you never knew if the secret police might be listening in. But there was a prophecy that would give the Narnians hope. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Care Paravel in throne, the evil time will be over and done. They long for the day when the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve to appear again in the land of Narnia, because their appearance would mean that this evil time of never-ending winter would come to an end, and the secret police would be dismantled, and the white witch's reign would be ended. Now, we live in evil times that we wish would also end, too. And now, I'm not just referring to the weather, although some might argue that in Houston, there's a never-ending heat wave. Uh, we had a conversation with my family back in California. They were in coats and scarves, and they saw a photo of Hudson in t-shirt and shorts, and they're like, why is he still in a t-shirt? 
not realizing that it's still 80 degrees here in Houston. So it's this never-ending heat, but I'm not referring to the weather, but you know what we mean, that when we live in evil days, we recognize that evil manifests itself in so many ways, that it manifests itself in broken relationships. That for some of us, as we go home for winter break, we may not want to go home because we recognize that our parents, their relationship is often characterized by arguments, by conflict. Some of us may feel anxious about the yearly Christmas gathering because you do know that Uncle Ben and Auntie Betty will always bring up that grudge from childhood when Grandma showed a little bit more favor to Aunt Betty. And you hear the story all over again. Or maybe you don't receive an invitation to Christmas dinner because you received a portion of the inheritance that other family's members thought they should have received. That evil manifests itself in broken relationships. But evil also manifests itself in disease. This may be the very first Christmas that your family gathers together and there is an absence at the dinner table because the disease claimed a family member's life. Or it might be news of a family member or friend struggling with some kind of illness that puts a damper on Christmas. That evil manifests itself even in our sickness and disease. And we also recognize that evil manifests itself even in our own lives because we have this inability to do good. We know that we should remain silent rather than speak a harsh word, but you know, when we hear someone make an irrational assertion, we just find ourselves before assessing whether or not we should speak, just words coming out. That we lack even the self-control to say a gentle word because of the evil that exists within us. We live in an evil age, but do we have a message that predicts its end as well? Is there anything that tells us that this evil age won't last forever? And there is. That there is a message. There is good news. In fact, Jesus proclaimed this good news thousands of years ago. And as his followers, we have been entrusted with this same message. So how do we proclaim the good news that Jesus proclaimed? What do we need to do in order to make this news known? Now, thousands of years ago, when Jesus first proclaimed this news, it happened when Israel was living under the rule of an oppressive foreign king. I mean, this king would be willing to slaughter a town of infants to protect his rule. And they also lived under the rule of a foreign empire, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire would employ fellow Israelites to extort their fellow countrymen in the form of taxes. But there was a prophecy of hope in the land of Israel. There is a Messiah coming. A Savior would come to deliver them from their foreign oppressors. It would be a king like David who would raise them up to new heights of glory. And it is into this time of Israel's history that Jesus came. And in this year's Advent series, we'll be exploring what did Jesus come to do? What did he come here to accomplish? And in this very first message, we will meditate and think upon the good news that Jesus came to proclaim.
Now, the account of this proclamation is found in Luke chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles and you haven't turned there already, please turn there with me. Luke chapter 4. Uh, thank you, Lexi, for the scripture reading this morning. Appreciate it. Again, this morning's passage is in Luke chapter 4. Now, to learn how we can proclaim the good news, we'll be thinking through three questions. The first question is, what enables us to proclaim the good news in Jesus' absence? I mean, since Jesus is no longer here, what qualifies us to serve as his messengers? What gives us the credentials, the resume, to proclaim the good news? And then there's the second question. What is the good news that Jesus proclaims so that we too might be able to proclaim it? What is the content of this message? What is the content of this good news? And there's the last question. How can we be confident in the good news that Jesus proclaimed? How can we be assured that the good news that Jesus spoke of is actually true? What validates this good news? So let's tackle that very first question. What enables us to proclaim the good news in Jesus' absence? And the answer to that question, what is the credential, what is the qualification, what enables us is the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God enables us to proclaim the good news in Jesus' absence. That the indwelling Holy Spirit empowers us to serve as God's heralds. And it is His presence that qualifies us to be his messengers, that the Spirit of God enables us to proclaim the good news in Jesus' absence. Now, we'll see that the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus for this very same work, that he enabled Jesus to proclaim the good news. So let's look a little bit at the background of this passage in Luke chapter 4. This short narrative occurs in the town of Nazareth. It's Jesus' hometown. It's located west of the Sea of Galilee. Let's look at verse 16 really quick. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And then it goes on to describe Jesus' habit. That it is his habit, every Sabbath he would attend service at synagogue. Now, many of us probably have not attended synagogue, but there is an order to the synagogue service, much alike the order of service that we have at HCC. That there is a call to worship, which typically was a recitation of the Shema, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 7. Then there would be a prayer, and then there would be a reading from Hebrew Bible, first from the law and then from the prophets. And this would explain why Jesus is handed a scroll from Isaiah to read. Look at verse 17. It says, And the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and the found the place where it was written. Now, the idea of spirit-empowered proclamation of the good news is actually found in this very first section of Jesus' reading from the book of Isaiah. Uh, look at verse 18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, this text in verse 18 is from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61. And for those of you who have gone to our Old Testament survey course, especially with the Jeopardy class last Sunday, you should know that Isaiah chapter 61 occurs in the section of Isaiah that talks about the restoration of Israel, that it is the salvation of Israel that is promised, that is foretold. 
And the prophet Isaiah sees himself as God's spokesperson because the Spirit of God had filled him to proclaim this message. Now, just as the presence of the Spirit of God qualified Isaiah to be God's spokesperson, the Spirit of God also qualifies Jesus to be his messenger as well. Now, no, we are in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. But if you go back to Luke chapter 3, you'll read of Jesus receiving baptism. And then you read of how the Holy Spirit at baptism comes upon him. And then after the Spirit of God comes upon him, in the beginning of Luke chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Now, you may be wondering, why would the Holy Spirit come into Jesus' life and then lead him into the wilderness? It's because the Holy Spirit leads people into situations where they will experience the conflict, the tension between the will of God and their sinful flesh. And the flesh refers to this inward disposition to save, to preserve, to protect ourselves. And oftentimes, we're willing to engage in sin to do this because the demands of our body causes us to be sinful. And if you doubt that, ask anyone who has ever felt hangry. Because when your body is hungry, you do things that are not very pleasant in order to get some food into your system. That is a manifestation of your flesh. Now, when Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted in his flesh, he faces three temptations, but in each situation, Jesus remains faithful to the Lord. And then Satan departs and waits for another time to test Jesus' flesh. So coming out of the wilderness, Jesus is filled with the power of the Spirit. So where does the Spirit bring Jesus after the temptation in the wilderness? He brings him home to Nazareth. And the presence of God therefore qualifies him to be God's spokesperson. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's great for Jesus, but Jesus is no longer here. I mean, after he died, rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven. Yeah, he's coming back, but what do we do in his absence? Now, although Jesus is no longer here physically, he's here spiritually. He's here with us spiritually because he sent the Spirit of God to dwell within us. That every single person who has professed faith in the redeeming work of Christ has the Spirit of God dwelling within. Now, I want to be careful because when we use the word dwell, dwell within, take up residence within us, we think that if a surgeon opens up our hearts and looks at the ventricle, it's like, oh, the Holy Spirit took up residence there. That's not what we mean. When we talk about this idea of indwelling, residing within, it's a metaphorical language talking about a deep, intimate relationship with God the Father. And that we are able to experience that through the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, this metaphor of dwelling, of taking up residence in, shows intimacy because you wouldn't let anyone stay in your house for an extended amount of time unless they were a very close friend or a family member. So in the same way, the biblical authors are using this image of indwelling, of taking up residence to depict a deep, intimate relationship with God. And the Spirit of God helps us then to live out God's will, to live out these gospel realities. And one of those realities is the proclamation of the good news. So what is the implication then? 
if all of us who are Christian have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, what is the implication? Well, the implication of the Spirit of God dwelling within us, that means each and every Christian is qualified to serve as God's messengers. This means that there is not a special set of believers who are able to share the gospel while others refrain. That gospel proclamation is not just reserved for the elders, the deacons, the pastors, the ministers. That if the Spirit of God truly dwells within every single Christian, then every single Christian should have the ability to proclaim the good news to anyone they come into contact with that is not a believer. And so if we have this responsibility that every single believer is to proclaim this good news, then how do we do it? Because we don't always feel inclined to share the good news with other people. So how do we actually make it happen? To actually proclaim the good news requires us to depend upon the Spirit. I know that many of us, because we are self-reliant, we prefer to do things our way, in our own time, with our own methods. But actually proclaiming the good news requires us to depend upon God's help. And we recognize that because if we were left to our own devices, when it comes to gospel-sharing opportunities, we would actually prefer to remain silent. And we can sense the flesh operating within us. The flesh says things like this. Well, you know, if you talk about Jesus, this relationship is almost as good as over. Or if you bring up Jesus at work, what if you get fired? Or if you talk about your beliefs on this particular moral issue, then people are going to think you're intolerant. And to battle with these thoughts requires us to depend upon the Spirit, that we need to preach to ourselves the truth, and the Spirit of God helps us to do that. That even if this relationship is over, my relationship with God is unchangeable. If I get fired from this job because I talked about my faith, God is the one who provides for all my needs and will provide for me another position. If I so value other people's opinions, I need to remember that God will be pleased with me, even if people think that I'm intolerant. That it is the Spirit of God that we need to depend upon if we are to proclaim the good news. Now, if the Spirit of God is the one who enables us to proclaim the good news, then what is the good news? What is the good news that Jesus proclaimed? I mean, after all, we want to proclaim the same message. So what is this news? The good news that Jesus proclaimed is that deliverance from evil has come, that the end of evil has started, that evil has met its match. Evil will cease. Evil will no longer hold sway over people and over this world. And so the good news is that deliverance from evil has come. Now, Jesus, again, reads a passage from Isaiah that describes what will happen when God's servant visits Israel. Note the word proclaim in verse 18 and 19 occurs three times. If you look at the text, you'll see it. Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
three times proclaim occurs. And what will the Lord's servant proclaim? Deliverance. And this deliverance will signal the beginning of a new era. That Jesus proclaimed the good news of deliverance from Isaiah to say that a new era has come. So let's look this morning at who will experience this deliverance. Because we know that people will experience, but what kind of people? So if you look at verse 18, it says, to the poor. And then it says, to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So you have the poor, you have the captive, you have the blind, you have the oppressed. That you have four types of people that are mentioned here. So then the question is, so is Jesus talking about these literal types of individuals? That when the servant of God comes, is he going to go to the underpass to preach to the poor who are living in the in those underpasses or in the slums? Will he go to the prisoners and open up their prisons and let those prisoners go free? Will he go to the hospitals, to the ward where all the blind patients are, and says, be healed? Or will he go to those cast off of society, such as orphans and widows, and to proclaim freedom to them? Is that what Isaiah and Jesus are saying in these verses? I would say kind of, because these words, poor, captive, blind, and oppressed, are images. That these words are metaphors that describe the spiritual state of people. That the poor refers to those who recognize that they are spiritually destitute. When they think about the holiness of God, they realize that there is nothing that they could ever do that could make them good enough to be in his presence. One might say that they have the same realization of Isaiah, that when Isaiah sees the angels proclaiming holy, holy, holy around the throne of God, he feels undone, and he exclaims, Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Because Isaiah recognizes impoverished state before the Lord. That is what is meant by being spiritually poor. And the word captive can be translated into the word exile. And Israel knew what it meant to be in exile. The people of Israel began as sojourners in the kingdom of Egypt. Later, God brought them into the promised land, but then God expelled them from the promised land because of their disobedience, and they lived in exile in Babylon for many years. And when they returned home to Israel, they continued to live under the reign of a foreign empire, the Romans. So it seems as though the Israelites were very well acquainted with what it meant to be a captive. That they were longing for the day that they would be free from these foreign rulers. But we discover in the New Testament that it's not just about the foreign rule that needs to be overthrown. That Jesus came to provide them deliverance. Not from the Roman oppressors, but from the captivity of sin. That captives, spiritual captives, realize how sin holds us in bondage. Now, you may be wondering, what do you mean by bondage? I'm free. I live in the United States of America. I have freedom of speech. But if you are truly free, then why is it so hard for you to sometimes put down your phone when you're in a conversation with someone? If you are truly free then why are you so diligent in maintaining your Instagram story so that you're well-liked? 
If you're truly free, then why do you keep on looking at your retirement account, wondering if your market fluctuations are going to affect your retirement? Are you truly free? That these are manifestations of sins hold over our affections, our peace, and it's a manifestation of evil at work. Now, there's also the idea of blindness. Yes, Jesus does heal many blind people. But it's interesting, if Jesus healed so many blind people, then how come in the Gospel of Luke there's only one recorded instance of that healing? The one instance where Jesus actually heals a person of blindness occurs right before he enters into the city of Jerusalem. And this blind person recognizes that Jesus is the root of Jesse, that he's the son of David, that he is the Messiah. And so it is only in that instance where Jesus heals his blindness. And it seems as though what Jesus is talking about isn't a physical blindness, but a spiritual blindness. That the servant will come to help those who do not know who God is to be able to see him more clearly. And so Jesus adopts Isaiah's words by saying that the good news is that people will see that Jesus is indeed God incarnate and the Messiah and the Savior. That he is the one sent by the Father to save people from the bondage of sin. Now, the last word that is described here. The last group of people are the oppressed, and that's found in verse 18. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, if you look at your cross-reference, if you have a cross-reference Bible, you're going to say to me, well, Henry, that doesn't come from Isaiah 61, and you're correct. It comes from Isaiah chapter 58. And in Isaiah chapter 58, Isaiah accuses the people of Israel for failing to care for the oppressed. But notice this section in verse 18, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is something that the servant of God will come not to proclaim, but to actually do. Because if you notice, it's to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty, but here it says to set at liberty. This means that the servant of God will actually come and accomplish this work of freeing those who are oppressed, that he will be the deliverer. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Now, Jesus not only proclaimed deliverance for the poor, the captive, the blind, but he came also to deliver. He actually came not to profess this message, but he actually came to make this message true. And he proclaims this new era. Look at verse 19. It says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee that's found in Leviticus chapter 25. That every 50th year, Israel would set all captives free, cancel all debts, and return the land to the people. And this year of Jubilee would foreshadow the year where all spiritual debts would be canceled and people would indeed be free. And Jesus is the one who not only talks about the year of Jubilee, he is the one who's going to make it happen by freeing people from the captivity of sin. So after this passage of the prophets, 
someone would actually have to provide an exposition. After the prophets are read, someone would actually have to tie the law and the prophets together through a sermon. So it's no wonder that once Jesus reads this passage, everyone's eyes are on him. Look at verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Because they looked forward to what will Jesus say? And the next verse, Jesus says that the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, meaning evil, its end has begun. And the defeat of evil continues to this day. Now, you may be wondering, well, if the defeat of evil continues to this day, then how come not everyone hears it? How come not everyone rejoices over this news? It's because it requires people to actually go and to proclaim it. It requires those of us who believed in the good news that the bondage of evil is broken to actually go and to proclaim it, and that we need to proclaim deliverance to those who are under the bondage of evil. Now, what does this mean? Now, what I'm saying is not you're not going to go to your Christmas dinner and say, excuse me, excuse me, family, family, please listen, please listen. Gather around, gather around. Before we have Christmas dinner, I just want to say that we live in an age of evil. And Uncle Ben, you know that you're evil because every time we gather together, all you talk about is your daughter and how your daughter is now at Harvard. Evil, right? And we don't say that, oh, Aunt Betty, you are evil because all you talk about is how well you made it in the stock market this year. Evil. That's not what I'm talking about. When we're talking about proclamation of deliverance, we're talking about how do you actually connect with people and engage with them by listening to them to share their lives so that when the opportunity arises, we invite them to study with us the deliverance that Jesus provides. Maybe a friend may ask you this week, so what are you doing for Christmas holidays? And you say, well, my church is having Christmas Eve service, so I plan to attend. What are your plans? Well, we have a get-together with our family on Christmas Day, but no, no real plans for Christmas Eve. Well, if you're free, then you're welcome to join us or join me at Christmas Eve service. In fact, some of my friends afterwards, we're going to get together to watch the new Avatar film. Maybe you want to come join us. Well, that sounds really nice. I'll have to think about it, you know? And it's those types of invitations that begin opportunities for gospel proclamation to happen. That they come to a service, whether it be Christmas Eve service, Good Friday service, Easter service, they hear the gospel proclaimed, and it's an opportunity to engage and to have a conversation. Now, the question then is, this is the good news that we proclaim, but how can we be confident that this good news is true? How do we know that it is something that we can truly believe in? What is the evidence? And that's the last question. We can be confident in the good news that Jesus proclaimed because he gave his life to make it happen. That Jesus would come to die on a cross, to rise from the dead, to free us from the bondage of evil. And they would take on the consequence of our sin, death, so that we could actually receive his perfect life and live. That we can be confident that the good news that Jesus proclaimed is true because he gave his life to make it happen. I mean, that's why we celebrate Advent. 
that we celebrate Advent to commemorate Jesus' birth, that he came to this earth to be born to restore us into relationship with God. Remember the last section of verse 18, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the key verse, even in the Gospel of Luke, is this, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That Jesus not only came to preach the good news of evil ending, he is the good news. He is the one who ends the evil. It is through his work on the cross that evil has an expiration date. And let's say we believe this. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, rose from the dead, and the power of sin and evil is now broken. And this means that the countdown for evil has begun. But then why do I still experience evil in my life? And it's because we experience deliverance in part now, and we will experience it completely at his return. So how do we experience deliverance now? It is through the power of the Spirit who guides us and directs us to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord so that we would say no to our old self and say yes to our new self, to say no to our fleshly desires and to say yes to the desires of the Spirit so that we would conform our lives to the will of God. And not only do we experience this personal form of deliverance from the evil that works in our lives, but even the church works to reverse the evil effects of sin. Then the first century, the Roman Empire would abandon children so that they would die to exposure, but the church would take these children into their care. And this care for the overlooked children continues to this day, especially as churches involve themselves in foster care, adoption, and child sponsorship. And the churches also care for the poor by opening up shelters and soup kitchens to provide for the needs of the poor. And so while evil continues to persist, God uses the church to push it back. But there is a day when Jesus will return to completely conquer evil and death, and it'll be at his second return. Now, when you look at verse 19, it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but there's some editing here because if you return to Isaiah chapter 61, there is a phrase that is missing. The phrase that is missing is this, the day of vengeance of our God. That when Jesus came the first time, he came to save. But when Jesus comes the second time, he will come to judge. And all the wicked and evildoers will receive their just desserts. That while evil may still be here, it has an expiration date. So we can proclaim this good news confidently because it is true. That Jesus is truly a human being. He was born in a real place. He grew up in a real time. That he truly died on a cross. He truly rose from the dead. And because these things are true, it's not just something that we believe it is we know it to be true, so therefore we proclaim it. And that should give us confidence. So to summarize, what enables us to proclaim the good news in Jesus' absence? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God enables us to proclaim the good news in Jesus' absence. And what is the good news that Jesus proclaimed? The good news is that deliverance from evil has come. And how can we be confident in this good news? We can be confident because we know that Jesus gave his life to make it happen. So proclaim the good news that deliverance from evil has been accomplished because we are God's spirit-empowered messengers. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to hear your word preached. 
and to be reminded that we have been entrusted with a message of good news, a good news that Jesus proclaimed long ago, that deliverance from evil has come, and that as we go into our workplaces, our classrooms, and even into our homes, that we would take this message and proclaim it as well. We ask that your spirit would empower us to do this, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.